You're listening to Big Table, a podcast about books and conversation presented by Hat and Beard Press, Dub Lab, and Gold Diggers in Los Angeles. I'm your host, JC Gable. For each episode, we speak to one author about a singular book in a long-form interview. Each interview is then followed by a brief reading, sometimes from the same book being discussed, sometimes by a like-minded title and a different author. But every episode does retain a loose theme throughout, and is inspired by the work of radio host and oral historian Studs Terkel. Thanks for listening. while scouting locations for Easy Rider. Dennis Hopper met a tall and lanky Jersey transplant named Satya de la Manitou. This by-chance meeting would lead to a 40-year friendship documented in Nick Ebeling's film Along for the Ride, which recounts Satya's four decades as Dennis Hopper's so-called right-hand man. From 1970 until Dennis's death in 2010, Satya was Hopper's number two, through spectacular highs, but also incredible lows. Along for the Ride now has a companion book of the same name published by Hat and Beard Press. The book includes scores of cutting room floor material, as well as dozens of unpublished photographs and ephemera, much of which Satya has kept safe in his storage locker in Los Angeles. To bring things back to the beginning, I wanted Satya, the film's star, and Nick, the director, to revisit their first meeting at Musso and Frank's, how they clicked and how their mutual appreciation for Hopper led to this critically acclaimed film and now book. Here's Satya De La Manitou and Nick Ebeling. The last movie is in obscurity. And, for, uh, and I specialize in Mondo Obscuro. <laughs> and one of the ways that, that I've cultivated that is through the last movie, because that substantiated my belief that Dennis Hopper was one of the most important artists of the 20th century. Uh, by, by being exposed to the last movie, and then when I met a guy from another generation that felt the same way, I was completely blown away. I mean, I felt like I, I met uh, my, uh, uh, a kid that... Uh, I gave up for an ado- for adoption and came back for 50 years later. I mean, that's the way it was. I mean, I never met anybody that was so moved by the last movie as Nick was. And so that immediately solidified my relationship with him. And I knew here's another crackpot that I could really get, get along with. The biggest takeaway for me in working with you guys on Along for the Ride was just finding out how much of an outsider's insider Dennis was at the right time, certainly throughout the entire 60s. And you could even make the argument, as evidenced in Nick's film, that the 70s were actually quite productive for, for Dennis, despite being on a lot of drugs. It was more that he was blacklisted than it was that he didn't want to work. you got to remember, he was married to Leland Hayward's daughter. Now, Leland Hayward represented Henry Fonda, and a lot of, of big stars, and he produced a lot of big movies. So Dennis was on the road to be one of the insiders. But 
because he followed his heart, he wound up as an outsider, even though he was given, afforded every opportunity to conform. And especially after his confrontation with uh, Henry Hathaway, his uh, reputation as an outsider was confirmed. But I mean, you're a big filmmaker now. You should have a certain day out on the golf I was course. a big, big filmmaker. <laughs> have you hit bottom? No, I hit the top. I know. <laughs> and around that time, he then starts to have these ideas, these inclinations of both the last movie and Easy Rider, and he starts to write his own screenplays. And he has ideas of being a director. Yeah, he wrote... Uh, he wrote the last movie in this early 60s uh, uh, when he got friendly with Stuart Stern uh, on the uh, set of Rebel. Nick Ray, the director of Rebel Without a Cause, got mad at him because he was uh, romantically involved with Natalie. And uh, Nick had his eye on Natalie as well. And uh, so a lot of Dennis's uh, part was cut out of Rebel and he had plenty of time to uh, schmooze with uh, Stewart. People know that Dennis was influenced by James Dean as an actor, and, you know, as a maverick, or whatever you want to call it. But there was also this thing, you know, James Dean was on the road to directing. He was already sculpting. He was already working on artwork. He was already in the, the, the art scene. And that rubbed off on, on Hopper definitely from everybody that... that you know, that is, was an insider's outsider to his life. And we found that, you know, there's a whole bunch of things corresponding. You know, some say that James Dean kind of directed Rebel Without a Cause. You know, there's a lot of people that were on that set that would, would claim that. I think even Hopper said that a few times in interviews. And um, there's this interesting correlation with that in the art gallery scene of the late 50s and Hopper seeing this film called A Movie, by Bruce Connor, which was ex this experimental film that was, uh, you know, cut up and deconstructed. And I think uh, uh, Bruce had used, uh, Bruce Connor had used uh, just reels from film that he had found in an alley or something F like found that. Found footage. Yeah. yeah, found footage and just cut it together. And that really was something that influenced Hopper uh, to become a director as well. So there's these two interesting things that are happening between, you know, uh, the art world you know, art, art, experimental art film, and then this idea of, you know, you know, uh, Dean was a massive maverick. You know, there's a story of, of, you know, Dennis waiting in the hallway at Warner Brothers, reading, you know, auditioning for, for Rebel, and James Dean walks in, and, or, or it was East of Eden, or somewhere around there. Dennis was a contract player at Warner Brothers, and uh, James Dean just busts out of the office with all the execs, and he just has his middle finger up in the air at them, and he's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, and fuck you. And you know how young Hopper saw that at 17, 18 years old, and that was really, I think, a, a guiding light for, for him as an influence, you know, was, was Dean. It's a big deal in the story. I thought uh, that I was one of the best actors in the world when I was 18, 19 years old, or on the way to being, you know. And... Uh, Watching him unravel without a cause, I just, uh, he was doing things that were so far over my head uh, that uh, I couldn't even comprehend him. I, I threw him into a car on the Chicky Run. I grabbed him, threw him into a car, and I said, you gotta tell me what, you, what you're doing, because I don't understand what you're doing. 
I said, should I go to New York and study, you know, at the actor's studio? And what, I mean, what should I do? And he said, don't go to New York and study. <laughs> he said, just, uh, just, uh, he said, just do it. Do it. Don't show it. You know, James Dean only made three movies and Dennis was fortunate enough to be in two of them. Um, but I could see what you're saying, Nick, is that was the sort of model to take at that time because even before so-called New Hollywood hit, um, the conformity of the 1950s was uh, was really not good for uh, creativity. But I think what's interesting about Dennis is by the time everything does start to open up by the mid-60s and the Vietnam War, of course, directs a lot of the counterculture at that time, Dennis was poised to actually take advantage of it. He was on the way to being, you know, kind of like uh, embraced by this kind of Hollywood royalty. And instead he was sort of, he became a pariah. You know, Hopper's in these, he's in these, starting to get smaller parts in these bigger movies when he comes back from New York. And uh, Leland Hayward is kind of helping that happen. And, you know, he's in these these films like uh, Hang Him High and... Um, what is it? Uh, From Hell to Texas. No, that was earlier. Um, there's a few of them. And he's kind of poised to just become one of those, one of those, that guys of 1970. You know, he could have wound up in Towering Inferno, you know, <laughs> by the early 70s based on the, you know, the track he was going. When Easy Rider came out, you know, Hopper was a friends with a lot of the children of a lot of famous people like John Wayne and, you know, Robert Mitchum. There's a story that John Wayne actually went to go kill Dennis Hopper for making Easy Rider and poisoning the youth of America. You know, and I think, you know, once you've crossed that line to that old guard who were trying to hold on to what, I don't know what they were trying to hold on to at that time, um, I don't think there's any coming back. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, then? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I see your point, though, about that old guard trying to cling to what was left of, you know, a certain regalia of, you know, post-war America, which didn't really work out for most people. And the last movie is really partially about all that. You know, um, there's a, the, one of the characters is based on John Wayne. One of the characters is based on Henry Hathaway. And that, that experience of, the, of that old Hollywood kind of, kind of ended. One day, Dennis said to me, let's go down to the theater. I want to show you my unexpurgated version of the last movie. After about 15 hours, he said to me, you want to wrap it up now? And I said, are you kidding? This stuff is dynamite, Dennis. I didn't know you had it in you. And that stuff of the Altiplana, show me more. Laszlo and you are created a brilliant film here, and it's a feast for the eyes. And then I realized this guy that made Easy Rider, a film that I enjoyed and I thought was groundbreaking, but not a work of genius. But this film, this film was sensational. I decided to make a firm commitment to help the man. What's going to happen at the last movie is not accepted as Easy Rider was. What's going to happen to me? Nothing can happen to me. Because, like, you know, I, uh, I was sleeping on a mattress when I ed edited Easy Rider, and I can sleep on a mattress again. I have friends. I don't... 
Along for the Ride, the film, is now streaming on Hulu and Amazon. And the book, which includes the film, is available now at hatandbeard.com. For today's reading, along for the ride, director Nick Ebling will read If, a poem by Rudyard Kipling, a favorite of Dennis Hopper's. If, by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired of waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on, if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Big Table is produced and presented by Hattenbeard Press, Dub Lab, and Gold Diggers in Los Angeles, and is supported by Invisible Republic, a nonprofit arts organization based in Chicago and Los Angeles. You can learn more about their community-based programs and publications at invisiblerepublic.org. Big Table would not exist in the audio world without the expert skill sets, friendship, and dedication of sound designer Matea Bain and audio engineer Jacob Ross. Special thanks to Eric Gorman at Gold Diggers and Alejandro Ale Cohen at Dub Lab for early encouragement and engineering prowess. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.